by Passion Church, the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. Declaration of Independence states we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And guess what? I believe God is for all of that. And I know we are here at the church. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and the joy that God gives us. Amen? Are you on board with that today? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, not long after me and my beautiful wife Angie got married, I purchased me a used bass boat, and I was really excited about it. And I used to take it all the time out to Arca Butler or Sardis, wherever we'd go, and I'd do a lot of fishing out of it. Sometimes we would go out there and go skiing, or we'd pull one of those big inner tubes around. Had a lot of fun with that boat. And, uh, you know, as time went on, Angie went with me less and less, and I couldn't hardly get her to go, but this one time that I'm going to tell you about, I said, Angie, you need to go because Heath's bringing his new fiance, you know, and it'd be a good chance for you to meet her. And then all of a sudden, Angie was on board, and no pun intended, but she, she was on board and she wanted to go. She said, this would be a good opportunity for me to meet, you know, my future sister-in-law. And boy, she didn't know, but she was saying a mouthful there after this trip. But anyway... We got there, and we all loaded on the boat, you know, and Heath pushed us off for the dock, and we, we floated out, and, and I cranked that bit. I had 150-horsepower mercury on the back of this boat now. You know, <laughs> one of them numbers, you know, it just gets men's blood boiling, you know. And uh, I was excited about that, and, and uh, I looked around and gave a cavalier wink to nobody in particular, you know, because I was just so excited. And I let down on that throttle, and that thing I jumped up on the water like Shamu going after a bucket of fried penguin or something, you know. <laughs> and I took off, and we was, before you know it, that boat would do about 55, but that's with the, just the prop in the water, and the rest of us are, you know, floating around up in the air somewhere. And we're taking off down there, and Angie starts nudging me in the ribs. Oh, oh, you know, and I already had calluses there from previous trips <laughs> but she's saying you know I know what she was thinking don't go ahead and show yourself a jerk right off you know <laughs> save it for later I don't know why she wanted me to save it you know <laughs> but it was coming so anyway I said all right all right and I slowed it down we set it down out there in the middle and uh, so I started barking orders all right hook up the rope you know Heath do this do that you know blow up the inner tube and get everything ready and since he since my brother Heath he was you know striking around like a banny rooster, you know, trying to impress his girl and everything. And I knew there wasn't room for another ego like that on the boat. I told him he'd be, he'd be volunteering to go first. And so <laughs> I put him on the inner tube, and I got it cranked up, and it was my job to throw him off, to sling him off. And, and, and I was surprised. I couldn't hardly do it. He was hanging on, and, and I was going pretty fast. It, I had to get the thing almost up to 40-something miles. Have you ever been 40 miles an hour on the water? Anyway, I got it up to about 40 miles an hour, and then I took a sharp left, and that slung him around. 
until the G-forces just couldn't hang on anymore. And then he went across the water, and I didn't think he was ever going to sink. Y'all remember that show, Six Million Dollar Man, where the plane went <laughs> He went across that water, and he finally sunk, you know. And that's when that, that Mindy girl gave me the eye. That was his fiance. She gave me the eye, and I said, what? We can rebuild him faster, stronger, <laughs> you know. Well, anyway, we circled around and got him, and we pulled what was left of him back up onto the boat, you know. And uh, I, I started looking at Angie. I said, it's your turn, Angie. She's like, you're crazy. <laughs> I said, come on, Angie, I'll go slow. I was making all these promises. But Angie, don't play that. <laughs> Homie, don't play that. Angie said, no, no. And that's when something really surprised me. That Mindy, that feisty Mindy girl says, I'll go. I, I looked at Heath. He goes, I was okay. So, and Heath said, go slow. Take it easy. And I was already planning on it. You know, I was going to be real nice to her. We put her out there, and we're like, driving around, you know, real easy. And, and then something unexpected happened. I looked back, and she said, I looked at Heath, he goes, so we current, you know, I gave it a little more gas. Uh, we look back, she does it again. Before you know it, she's going fast as any regular fella would go. And then this was a direct challenge to my manhood is the way I saw it. <laughs> so I looked over at Heath, and he gave me the eye. He's like, bring her down a peg or two. He didn't say the words, and he swears to this day that he didn't give me the eye. Of course, his marriage being at stake and all. But he, but he gave me the eye. Bring her down, you know. And so what I started to do was I started to make little tight circles, and I started to, to stir up the water, the cauldron, I call it, the, the, the vortex of death. And pretty soon I had them, them waves just lapping up there in Arca Butler, you know, whoosh, whoosh. And, and I had them of tsunami proportions. And then I got that boat, and I rrr, coming, and I did a left turn on her. And she come around, and, whoa, 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 and there was the biggest wave I'd ever made standing right in front of her. And she, guess what happened? We got to get to our message. Maybe I'll tell you later. I don't know. Today's message is why the eagerness to reach out. That's on your sheet. I didn't warm myself out telling that story. We're in the message series, The All-Important Why, and this, today's message is why the eagerness to reach out. Well, we look at our vision, we see we're a warm, fun-loving family, and I think we got that down pretty good. I think if somebody comes here, they immediately feel like we're a warm place, friendly folks, we have fun. I think that's in our DNA. Really, all this is in our DNA, and I think we're just starting to discover some of these things. But we were... We're a warm, fun-loving family. There's no doubt about that. But then it says we're eager, eager to reach out with God's love. And I believe we are. But I don't believe we're as eager as we're going to be. We're eager as we need to be. I think there's some more eagerness to be built up 
Once we start seeing the results of reaching out with God's love, we're going to be a lot more eager than we are now. But we've got to get the ball rolling. We've got to get the waves moving in the right direction. Amen? So we know, you know we have O'Brien Park, and you know I'd be talking about it. O'Brien Park next Saturday. Um, there's maps on the back table. It's real easy to find Lamar and Prescott uh, right off the interstate there. You can see it from, from the interstate. Um, we're going to ha have hot dogs, hamburgers, chips, drinks. All that will be provided. There will be music. There will be uh, guest speakers. There will be games for the children and, and a lot of stuff going on. There will just be a, a whole bunch of love heaped upon that park and that neighborhood. There's three apartment complexes very close. There's a street with a lot of houses on it, and we're going to go before that this week and pass out flyers and really just invite the neighborhood and tell them we're coming to love on them. Now, this is the fourth time we've been there. Do you believe that already? This is the fourth time we've been there. Uh, I think the first couple times was mostly soul food, but this time, you know, last year was the church. And uh, another thing we're we're, I'm thinking about doing is putting a uh, couple of empty tables out there. So if you want to bring something out there, a dessert, a pie or something, a, a Tom suggested some watermelon, something to keep people cool, as, you know, out there. Some, if you want to bring something besides the hot dogs and hamburgers, you bring it and bless the people. That's up to you. We'll leave a couple of tables for that. Say God sees us. What do I mean? I don't know. You know, I, I do know. I, <clears throat> I often pray. I found myself, I don't know where I got the term, but I would often pray and say, you're the Lord who sees me. And I begin to refer to God as g the God who sees me. I don't know why. It was just a pet endearing name that I began to, I got somewhere along. I didn't know where I got it. But it's so true. God sees me. He sees me more than I see myself, unless I'm standing in a mirror. <laughs> he sees me all the time. He sees the good, bad. He knows what I'm thinking. He knows what I'm going to say before I say it. Oh, my goodness, he knows the thoughts that I think and the, even the ones I reject. He knows everything. He sees me. You know what I'm saying? He sees through me. And the funny thing about it is he still loves me. That, that's a pretty awesome thought, isn't it? God sees me. I didn't know where I got it until I was going through Genesis again recently. In Genesis 16, 13, it says, Therefore, after Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. And I said, that's where I got that. It was Hagar. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? She felt like that. You remember Hagar? I think it was last week that we talked about Abraham and Sarah having the baby and the, the promised child. You remember that they had the Ishmael? You know, they tried to make God's plan happen. Well, it was Hagar was the mother of the Ishmael. And this is Hagar in this scripture here. She, had, uh, she was just a lowly servant girl. She was just a, a, a handmaiden to Sarai. And uh, she was kind of abused here because they, I don't think they gave her much choice in the situation when Abraham and Sarah decided they wanted to use her to, to have a child naturally trying to help God, which was a mistake. They said, Hagar, you're going to marry Abraham. Didn't give her much of a choice. Here she is marrying somebody who's already got a wife. Probably he's 90-something years old or something. Probably not her uh, first choice. 
But anyway, she becomes impregnated, and now she's got this child, and now Sarai, who told her to do it, is being mean to her. And there's tension. You can imagine the tension between one wife and another of the same husband. <laughs> and so there's a lot of tension in the house, and Hagar can't take it anymore. I'm out of here. She's like, I'm just going out in the desert. I don't, it doesn't say, I don't think it says why she went out in the desert. She was running away. Maybe she was just going out in the wilderness to die. She's got this baby in her belly, this Ishmael. And uh, God stops her in the form of an angel of the Lord and comes out there. says, where are you going, Hagar? Go back to Sarai and uh, be obedient to her. I want you to know I'm with you. And, and I'm going to bless that child in your belly. God would bless an Ishmael? And that's when she says, God sees me. I want you to know, God is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter if the baby was a mistake, an accident. It don't matter. He says, I'm going to bless that baby in your belly and make a great nation out of it. And he did. He, said, he, he told the truth now. He said, he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. <laughs> And if you know the descendants of Ishmael, they're the Arabs that we deal with today. And a lot of them can be wild donkey of a man. They're, we're always fighting against them. They're hard to deal with. But nevertheless, God saw Hagar in her lowly state. Saw her out in the middle of the wilderness when she didn't think anybody was out there. Saw the baby in her belly. He saw it all. And the funny thing is, reading this story and studying up on it this week, do you know what the name Ishmael means? It means God hears. So God sees and God hears. He hears your cries. He heard Hagar weeping out in the wilderness. Boy, it takes good ears to hear somebody weeping out in the wilderness. Anyway, I wanted to ask you a question. Do you think God sees the people that live near O'Brien Park. No matter what their state, what they've been through, what situation they were born into, do you think God sees, do you think he hears their cries? Just a question. Because I, I know it's tempting for each of us and we have our list, you know, we pull it out of our back pocket and fold it out. Okay, I've got 107 excuses why I'm not going to be there Saturday. I will be out of town. Book me something, quick. You know, we have a list, and we can. I mean, it's the easy thing to do, so I can't be there because of this or this or this Saturday. And make a way to not be there. I understand that would be the easy. Let somebody else handle it. But what do you do with the fact that God asked us to handle it? And that God sees those people. He loves those people. I appeal to you and each one of us, each one to you, I'm talking to you, to let that love that's in your heart, shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost, let that rise up. I want to watch a, a, a slideshow from last year, 2015, at O'Brien Park. And as we watch these faces of these children and these people, do something for me. Do something for yourself and for God. Try to see these people, if you would.
pictures of us then <laughs> I forgot how many pictures we had of us reaching out but did you see those pictures did you see those people did you maybe you saw yourself you see because this is going to be just as much for you as it is for them this is going to teach us to be eager to reach out this is going to be life-changing you know it wasn't huge crowds out there we're hoping for a bigger crowd this year we're, we got some things in place to get more people uh alerted to it and everything and we're believing for big crowds but did you see the little girl with the cross on her 
cheek. Yeah, I told her to put that back up here. Do you see her? What do you see? That might have been the first time she's ever heard about Jesus. And don't you see all the promise in the world in those eyes? She might be a nurse. She might be the next mayor of Memphis. <laughs> Who knows? There's unlimited possibilities in her. She may be a wonderful mother. God has big plans. He sees her. So everybody there, whoever's there, we're going to reach out, we're going to love, and it's going to change us in the process. Uh, Angie whispered in my ear while I was sitting there. She said, some people have legitimate excuses not to be there, and, uh, and don't make everybody feel bad. I said, no, I'm going to make them feel bad. <laughs> Somebody's got to hold the line somewhere. Say the truth of the matter. I make you say stuff so you'll wake up. I say, <laughs> are we so different than anybody we reach out to? Didn't somebody once reach out to us? Weren't we on the other end at one point? This is on your sheet. Does our compassion towards others Give us a moral high ground from which to view them. Certainly not. In fact, the Bible tells us it's the exact opposite. Philippians 2.3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. <laughs> Don't be vain about this, giving glory to yourself. Look what I'm doing. He goes on to say, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Don't think you're better than the people that we're reaching out to. There's a story in the Bible in 2 Kings chapter 7. Samaria, the city of Samaria, has been besieged by the Armenians. And they've uh, surrounded and put a camp outside, and there's just a whole bunch of them. And Samaria can't come outside the city walls or be killed. Well, Ar the Armenians don't want to have to go over the wall, so they just wait them out. They're waiting on them to starve to death. And it's got so bad in the city of Samaria that they're eating their own children. It says a little cup of, of dove dung is going for a certain amount of money so that they can eat dove dung. They're, that's what they're eating in the city. It's got, they're starving to death. And if you think that's bad, there's four lepers outside the city. Sitting, they won't let the lepers in, and they're sitting outside the gate. I wish we could go in there and starve. <laughs> These four lepers are sitting there, starving with everybody else. They don't even get the comfort. Of just, they just get a little shade from the wall every now and then. I guess that's all. I don't know what they had to drink. Maybe somebody would hand them something through the gate or something. But these guys, they come to their senses and say, hey, you know what? Maybe if we go over to the Armenian camp, they'll be nice to us and let us live. Well, and if they kill us. What does it matter? We're going to die anyway. <laughs> right? Let's get this over with. And so they hop up, and they start walking towards the Armenian camp. And about that time, God has heard the cries of his people in Samaria, and he sends a sound that's so awesome, it sounds like chariots and horses coming from all over, that the Armenians panic and think the Samarians have hired the Egyptians to come help them, and they, they think they're over outnumbered, so they take off running. And they just leave everything, the tents and the food and their stuff, and run off. And so by the time the four lepers get there, there's nobody there. 
They're like knocking on the tent. <laughs> you ever knocked on a tent? <laughs> They're knocking on a tent. <laughs> Anybody there? There is nobody in the whole camp. And I can imagine, have you ever found yourself in that situation? You're they go in the tent. They start eating the people's food. They eat and they gorge themselves. They're starving to death, you understand. They eat till they can't eat no more. I can imagine it probably took them a couple hours to get through eating. They're sitting there, food all on their chin, you know, and they're looking at each other. Then they realize, look at all these fancy clothes. I saw some gold over there. Man's bag full of silver right there, man. There's a sword right there. They start gathering all the stuff, and they start making themselves piles, and they start running outside the camp and hiding it so they can have it later. And they're just, they're waiting on the um, Armenians to get back. They're probably, you know, nervous that they're coming back. So they keep gathering all the stuff. And then as the night wears on, they've got more stuff than they can carry. Their bellies are so full. That more, man, I, they're sitting there thinking, and it comes to them. You know, back in Samaria, they're starving to death. There's more food over here than they could eat in weeks and months. We've got all the stuff we need. Why don't we just go tell them so they can come live too? That was pretty nice of them considering they wouldn't even let them in the gate, right? They said it wouldn't be right in the sight of God for us to sit here and hoard all this stuff to ourselves. And so what they do? They went back and told the king of Samaria, hey, there ain't nobody over there. Plenty of food, come get it. The king was a little hesitant. He's a trap, you know. But eventually he sent some people out there and they realized it and then the whole city was saved because, because these four lepers were willing to go back to people that they may have reason to think didn't deserve it and tell the good news. So I got a question, and it's on your sheet. What you say? What would you say if somebody asked you why we're going to O'Brien? What would you, what would your answer be? Say say if we were there and News Channel Three comes up and says, "Why did you guys come out today?" Well, you know, we're wonderful like that. <laughs> uh, we can't help it. We're just good like that. No. My answer would be, I'm just one beggar trying to show another beggar where to find bread. I'm just trying to extend the same grace to others that God extended to me. I'm just like a leper trying to save a city. That's, that's why we're there. I, I want to get, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, he says, though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. In other words, I'm not doing this for my glory so I can feel good about myself. He goes on to say, for necessity is upon me. It's necessary that I do this. I've been asked to do this. Yea, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. How could I not? preach the gospel after God came and saved me. And do you think I'm going to go preach it and then tell everybody how great I am for preaching it? What do we have that we weren't given? For necessity has been laid upon us. We have been made ambassadors for Christ. And let me say this, not all the people at O'Brien Park will be lost sinners, gangbangers, and all this. 
We met a lot of people there last year that were Christian people that were praying for their neighborhood, and they were glad to see some Christian reinforcements showing up on the scene. They were so happy that somebody reached out and cared. And so there's a lot of Christians, a lot of brothers and sisters there uh, that are waiting for reinforcements. And woe unto us if we leave them out there by themselves. Say, the love of God compels us. Life begins after we get outside of ourselves and we tap into the love of God for others. That's when your life is going to begin. You know, you, I don't know what we've made it about. And, and, and understand when I, say, when I say these things, I'm not necessarily talking about us, but I'm just talking about people as a whole. You know, we make life about ourselves. And it's all about what I want, what I see in this life. But Romans 10, 15 says, How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. You want to know what's beautiful before God? Feet that are on the move. You know, Jesus told them, you know, what the main commandment was, to love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And he said the next one is to love your neighbor as yourself. But you know what he immediately had to go to after he said that? The story of the Good Samaritan. Because the first, he ain't no sooner got it out of his mouth, somebody says, well, who's my neighbor? You know, because we tend to want to pick and choose who we reach out to. Well, I think they're worthy of, of telling. But I don't, you know, I'm, that's not my neighbor. He's too far away. I'm, I'm, I'm only reaching out to this neighbor. And, of course, we know the parable of the Good Samaritan was saying, look, we're, we're all neighbors. Whether you be mortal enemies, the Jews and Samaritans, whatever, it doesn't matter. We're all supposed to be neighborly to one another. We don't get to pick and choose. Say everyone matters. Everyone matters. God's love knows no boundaries. God's love knows no boundaries. There's no skin color. There's no social economic status. There's, there's, no, there's no religious beliefs. God loves Muslims. God loves Hindus. He loves Buddhists. He loves them all. He just wants them to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. Philip Yancey says this, one who has been touched by grace will no longer look on those who stray as those evil people or those poor people who need our help. Nor must we search for signs of love worthiness. In other words, it's not up to us to see if somebody is worthy of love. That's not our job. God says we're all worthy of love. Grace teaches us that God loves because of who God is and not because of who we are. In other words, who, who we are as people has nothing to do with why God loves us. Just like that song we sang. Well, how does it go? He doesn't love us because of who we are. He only loves us because of who he is. And that's the way God's love is. We, we don't look for love worthiness, who we think is our neighbor. We're all neighbors on, in this planet called Earth. Amen? I said Wednesday night, I said... Two of God's best weapons used to advance his kingdom are, number one, the love found in the gospel. And number two, the love in the one preaching the gospel. That's God, two of God's biggest weapons here on the earth to promote his kingdom. We talked about this Wednesday night about how it's, we're not to fight 
we're not ze- zealots or whatever, and we're not taking the, you know, forcing people into believing. You know, that's what the Islam tries to do. But Christians, our weapons are love. Our greatest weapon is love. It's the love found in the gospel. It's seeing Jesus high and lifted up and seeing the love that would die on that cross for you. It's the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. So when we see the love of God in the gospel, man, we've got the most powerful weapon at our disposal. We have the words of eternal life. Point to yourself and say, I have the words of eternal life. You know what they are. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You know that scripture. That's all you need to get started. You know what he's done in your life. And it's the love in the one who preaches the word that is equally as important because they don't know you from Adam. And you come with some, well, you better turn or burn, I'll tell you that much. They're going to say, I'm not listening to that. But if you make it sound like you don't want them to burn, maybe you got something. Maybe if there's a little love in the gospel that you're preaching. But sadly, American Christianity, we, we lost a lot of that along the way. We began to think that, that our strength is in our evangelical voting block. You know what I'm saying? Because we, we vote together. That, that people will pay attention to Christians now. You know, we have political clout. Are you serious? There's many Christians voting this way as there is voting that way. We can't even agree on, on the main things. Our strength is not in our voting block. Our might is not in our numbers. And it's, and it's certainly not in our superior display of godly morals because they see us as so righteous. We've tried to show people how good people we are. That's not winning the lost. Our influence is not through uh, peddling catchy Facebook posts. As nice as they are and as good, well-meaning as they are, that's not how we're going to reach the world. Our draw is not in our lofty buildings and our air condition and our mood lighting and our contemporary music. All those things are nice, but that is not what's going to win people to the Lord. Our appeal is not in our book sales or in our box office successes. I'm glad we got Christian uh, movies out there and stuff. That's good. It's not in the amount of celebrities that come to Jesus two or three each year, you know. Overwhelming numbers. It's certainly not in our cliquish ways or in our Christianese vernacular. You know what I mean by that? Hallelujah, praise the Lord. We're speaking a foreign language. The people coming in church are like, i, I got to learn this language, you know, before I can be a part of that. We need to drop that because that's not the way people talk, and we make people feel self-conscious when they don't know how to speak the language. It's, I mean, we need to be real to this society. They need to see love, not, you know, some kind of form of godliness. Can I get an amen? Maybe I'm preaching in the wrong direction. I don't know. But, but our appeal is not in even in the fancy preaching. You know, we've seen, you know, fancy preachers that can get up and preach self-help messages and, and draw crowds to themselves. But it's not changing our culture. It's not changing our world. And it's not 
for the most part, leading people to repentance. I'll tell you where our Christian influence is. It's in his love. And it's in the willingness of his people to get outside of themselves and spread the love of God. It's the love. It's the power. At the nursing homes, at the troubled youth centers, at the jails, places like O'Brien Park, wherever God puts his finger, that is the power of God unto salvation, the gospel being spread. Sharing God's love is not something to run from. It's the greatest source of joy on this planet. Maybe you saw my Facebook post last night saying, are you running low on your joy? You're running on fumes? You, you just here because you're hoping to see a good cat video or something? You know, and that's the way you feel. Well, you want to stir your joy back up? Then sharing the good news and the love of God with other people, that's what stirs your joy, getting out of yourself and, get, and, and, and putting the focus on somebody else. You know that. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples. And since you know me, I don't never, you know, I never use sarcasm. And, uh, and I never make people feel bad about anything. I, I wanted to let somebody else do it for a moment. Could we watch that next video? When I was a kid, we used to play this game called Simon Says. Right? Most of us have played that, unless you're really young, because there's no app for it. it, it Simon Says is... Uh, you know, you just, Simon says, pat your head, you know, so, okay, you know, Simon said it. Um, it's just, it was a very simple game, but it's so weird how in the church, Jesus says is a totally different game. If Jesus says something, you don't have to do it, you just have to memorize it. You, 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 you study it, you memorize You guys, it, it doesn't make any sense, a lot of the things we do. When he tells us to go out and make disciples, and how many people in the, our churches are actually making disciples? They memorized it. You know, when I tell my daughter, hey, hey Rach, go clean your room. She doesn't come back to me two hours later and go, I memorized what you said. <laughs> you said, Rach, go clean your room. I can say it in Greek. My friends are going to come over and we're going to have a study on what it would look like if I cleaned my room. <laughs> she knows better than that. And so why do we think we're going to come before the judge one day and quote everything that he said and talk about how much we know? About it? it's, just, it's just this black and white stuff. If I just started with scripture, I'd go, here's what I would do. I would start making disciples. Wow, I'm glad I didn't have to say that. <laughs> Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Let's not be a Jonah. You know what I mean? Jonah was told by God to go and preach in the city of Nineveh, but he ran from it. He went the opposite way. 
How did that turn out for Jonah? Running from the plan of God, running from his obligation to God to tell them what God wanted them to know. Well, he found himself at the bottom of the ocean in the belly of a big fish. <laughs> Seaweed and stomach acid. I mean, it was a, a gross and nasty place. And he finally had to come to himself and say, this ain't where life is. Maybe some of you have done that. Maybe you know for a long period of time God has been dealing with you. Go speak to Nancy. Tell her what happened in your life, what I did. Go talk to so-and-so at the water cooler, every, you know, one time. You know, begin to tell your children about me, you know. Go on that church outreach. God, maybe God is dealing with you, but you keep running in the opposite direction. You don't understand why things are going bad. What happened when Jonah came to himself and said, okay, I'll go? God spit him out. <laughs> well, the fish spit him out, and he's on dry land again, and he goes and one man preaches in this huge city called Nineveh, and the whole city repents. The whole city. And you think, well, I wasn't going because I didn't think I had anything to offer. What is your reason for not going? You know, I'm not, you know, all I'll do is serve some hot dogs. What is that doing? That's not the way to think about this. Jonah went, and, and at his preaching, the whole city of Nineveh repented. You know what Jonah did after that? He goes and sits up on the hill mad because the whole city repented. He's like, I didn't want those people to get saved. Don't be a Jonah. Come on, there's no Jonas in here. If God can use somebody with an attitude like Jonah just because they went, he can certainly use people with a good heart like he's put in us. Amen? Don't be a Jonah. So, Feisty Mindy is on that inner tube, and she's being slung around the side of the boat at approximately 60 miles an hour, and there's this huge wave looming up ahead. Guess what happened? She hit that thing, and when she did, the inner tube went six to eight feet in the air, and Mindy she had a vantage point from above that looking down at it. <laughs> we had turned the boat around and was coming back to get her before she finally hit the water. <laughs> she hit it with pop. I mean, a belly flop. Am I telling the truth? You was there. She said, sure. She, she don't remember. Okay, these are almost true stories. But she came down and she hit the water with a belly flop. When we came back to get her, she was bobbing like an old cork. And as Heath grabbed her by the back of the lifeboat uh, preserver to pull her in the boat, she looked at me, and you know what she said? She didn't say nothing. In fact, she didn't say nothing to me for years. It was, it, I mean, she may have been courteous to me or something, but she really never said anything. She didn't try to involve herself with me for years. Hey, and I understand. Because back then, I, everywhere I went, I was dragging along this vortex of death. Because life was all about me. All I did was, everything was for my amusement, my pleasure. 
what I wanted out of life. I didn't care what I did to anybody else. How I made, I would make people the butt of my jokes, and, and my, I just didn't have the love of God in me. But when I got saved, I determined if God can look down and see me and care about somebody as wretched as I am, certainly my life needs to change, and the vortex behind me needs to be a vortex of life emitting from it, light. It needs to begin to, I need to begin to be an agent of change for good. Say, so it's time to step up. I don't know where you see yourself in this story or these stories, but at Tuesday night prayer, the prophecy came forth, step up. Whatever God called you to do, step up with all your heart. Don't just do enough to get by. That was what we prayed out. You know, maybe you've been given a position in the church. Maybe you've been asked to do something, and you just do enough to get by. Or maybe you come just enough to say you go to that church. Or maybe, I don't know what you're doing and where you're at. You're probably all the most faithful that we have. But whatever you do, God is calling us in this final hour. It's for such a time as this, God has saved us to step up, to wake up, to realize that we're it. We're the Jonas. We're the ones that God has called. We're the only ones he has to work with. And we got to get the job done. I'll give a candy bar to the first one who can find the book of Haggai in their Bible and say bingo. I might have to give a candy bar if anybody brought a Bible. First one to find the book of Haggai. Haggai. You got it? Bingo. There you go. Give her a round of applause. I can count on Dorinda. She's getting good. She's going to be preaching here for long. All right, let me give you a little background on where this book starts because we're going to start with chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, in 532 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia, he's not an Israelite or anything, he's the king of Persia, and so I guess I'm, I'm imagining that God must have put it in his heart to help his people. Uh, anyway, he sends about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And I think, I didn't study it this much, but I believe this is after Nehemiah had went and Ezra had went and they had rebuilt the walls and got uh, Jerusalem inhabitable again. So now King Cyrus has sent 50,000 Jews to the, uh, Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of God. Well, they, they built the foundation. They got that much finished, but then they ran into opposition. They ran into difficulties, and the project stalled. And uh, for 16 years, they kind of just said, well, they just kind of got used to the temple not being completed. You know what I mean? Uh, we are to kind of identify with that a little bit. We've been sitting here for almost 16 years. We've, we've had dreams that are not completed. This church has been through difficulties and, and seen our plans stalled time and time again. Do you know there's always opposition to the work of God? There's always going to be difficulties. But the courageous 
keep getting back up and keep fighting through and breaking through. It's hard to do the will of God. You've got to have a con- in your constitution. You've got to know in whom you believe. You've got to stand when nobody else will stand. But anyway, for 16 years, the work has stalled in Jerusalem. And we find in verse 1, on August 29th of the second year <coughs> of King Darius' reign, the Lord gave a message through the prophet Haggai. The prof- prophecy was to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, and the gov- he was the governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So he's talking to the governor and to the high priest. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. The people are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the Lord sent the message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? In other words, why are you guys building your kingdom and not at all concerned about mine? Verse 5. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look what's happening to you. You've planted much, but you harvest little. You eat but you're not satisfied. You drink and you're still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you can't keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them into pockets filled with holes. This is what the Lord of Heaven Army says. Look at what's happening to you. Now go up on the hills and bring down timber and rebuild my house. Now we are the house of the Lord. We know that we are the temple of the living God, And so when he says go up onto the hills and bring down the timbers, I believe he's saying go up and win souls because souls are the timbers of the house of God. Go win souls and build my house. We have the foundation laid, which is Jesus Christ. No other foundation can be laid. That which is laid is Jesus Christ. But we have to build it with the timbers. He says, then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You hoped for rich harvests, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Would God do that? Well, not our God. He's going to just let us live sumptuously and, and luxuriously and, and spend the rest of our life in our lounge chair, right? God wouldn't stir us to have to do anything, would he? He says, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins says the Lord of Heaven's armies, while you're busy building your own fine houses. It's because of you that heaven withholds the dew from the earth and produces no crops. Maybe it's because of us that America is in the shape that it's in. Because we got comfortable. I have called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain, the grapes, the olive trees, and all your other crops. A drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, and Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of God's people began to obey the message. Say, obey the message. They just began to obey, just like Jonah began to obey. Obey the message from the Lord their God. When they heard the words of the prophet Haggai, whom the Lord God had sent, the people feared the Lord. Maybe fear needs to come back to the house of God to get us motivated to do what we need to do. 
Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the people this message from the Lord. So God sees a people that's now willing to obey, and now they, they've developed a fear of God. He says, I'm with you. See, he's not trying to, he doesn't want, he, he's for us, not against us. I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord sparked the enthusiasm of Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and the enthusiasm of Yeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the enthusiasm of the whole remnant of God's people. Do you have any enthusiasm? They begin to work on the house of their God, the Lord of Heaven's armies. And on September 21st of the second year of King Darius, on second, it happened, they began on September 21st of the second year of King Darius's reign. Now, they had the sense to start in the fall time where it wasn't so hot. But, but we are where we at, and we have to start now. We're a little bit behind. We have to start in the summer. Say, now is the time for us to step up. Why the eagerness to reach out? That's the question today. Because God sees. Because God sees. He sees the hurting people. He hears their cries. He sees their hopelessness, their helplessness. He sees the, the darkness invading our nation. He sees that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is now becoming death, bondage, and the pursuit of self. He sees the work of the church stalling. 16 years. He sees the church forgetting that we're God's ambassadors. We've forgotten our role. He sees us forgetting that we're the keepers of the words of eternal life. That people are, are dying without. Forgetting that God's house must be built. And we're only consumed with building our own. You know, we were never supposed to set up our tent in this valley. In this valley of the shadow of death, we were not supposed to put down roots here. We're here for a short period of time. We're not supposed to build a foundation of our kingdom here. Our kingdom is from there. We have a better kingdom with better promises. We have an everlasting kingdom. Why would we want to, to invest all our thoughts, our time, and our resources into the things of this earth? The things that we're not going to take with us. The only thing we're going to take with us is the souls of man, the timbers of the house of God. We weren't supposed to set up our tent here. We were only supposed to lead a procession through this valley. And it's time we begin to lead again. It's time we step up. Say, step up. It's time for the church to rise up. It's our finest hour. Woe unto us if we don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Woe unto us. Will you rise up for the Lord? Has this message brought you down or has it encouraged you to be who you're called to be? Are you encouraged? Well, then rise up. Stand up on your feet. And let's, let's make some declarations to the Lord. Let's make a declaration of independence from the things of this world. Hallelujah. Father God, we just thank you. Say, I'm going to step up, God. I am yours. Use me. Oh, Jesus, we just thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father God. Thank you that, that we're all you need. This, this group right here could take this city so easily. We could take all of DeSoto County. Lord, help us. 
Give us the resources. Give us the thing. We, you know, when we take a step, you take a step. You give seed to the sower. We say, well, we don't have this. Well, get moving and you'll have it. Move in the right direction. You can't steer a parked car. Help us, Jesus, to take a step. O'Brien Park is another important step. Help us, Lord. No matter where we were planning on being, change our minds, Lord. This is important stuff. We have to begin to see that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world. And to, be, to love this world is enmity against you. To love the things of this world, the pride of life, the lust of, of other things, the lust of the eyes, the thing you're wanting this and that. Help us, Lord. Help us have, have real stirrings from real passion and be eager to reach out where we'll find real joy, our real purpose, our real calling in this world. Lord, Touch these people and those that will hear this by way of internet or, or CD or whatever. Stir us again, Father God. Help us to fear you once again. Help us to build your house. Help us to determine because you'll go with us. It's been too long when we put money in our pockets and it keeps falling through and, and we keep working harder to build our business and it keeps going backwards and we take one step forward and we go two steps back. It's time that we begin to be the church and we can begin to rise up, Lord God, and, and things begin to prosper. The wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. It's time we take the things that belong to the kingdom of God and the souls of men and how you would leave the 99 and go find the one. And how all people matter to you, everyone matters to you. Give us your heart. Help us see people. Help us hear their cries like you do. Help us see people. Help us see inside ourselves and see what is stopping us. What is taking away our courage to see that it's all a lie. That we can and we will and we shall overcome. It's for this purpose that you have created us. It's for this hour. And the time is now for us to step up, Lord. We give you our hearts afresh right now. We lay everything else down. Yes, we've got to pay the bills. Yes, we've got. I know, I know all that, all that stuff, Lord. You know all what we have to do. But it's time to take that list of excuses and throw it in the garbage. And when you say go, it's time to go. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.